Hello and welcome to this latest instalment of the Phil Hay Show. Brand new collaboration between us, the Square Ball, and the Athletic. With us in the studio, Phil Hay. Good morning, guys. Glad that you turned up for this one as well. Yes, on time. We've got a second series, which is good news. Uh, with me from the Square Ball as well, Michael Normanson. Hello. And Moscow White, Daniel Chapman. Hello. This podcast, one of 11 that The Athletic have launched on all the usual free podcast channels. So if you fancy looking beyond the boundaries of Leeds United, give them a try. You can hear those and many more at theathletic.com and you can subscribe with a 40% discount right now by using the code UKPOD. <laughs> Returning to your one to watch then from last week, Phil, Jonathan Woodgate was the guy you said we should keep eyes on. Yes. He didn't have a good weekend, I wouldn't imagine. No, um, he spent a lot of Saturday standing, arms folded, looking, pointing, Robbie Keane next to him doing exactly the same. I had an interesting view on Saturday because I was in the uh, in the cheese wedge between the, the East Stand and the South Stand with um, Nikki Allen, who people probably know as the lady who goes to the football with a, a guide dog. Um, she had a new guide dog with her on Saturday. So I went along to, to see what it was all about. And we were front row there, so you know, literally sort of pitch height. And it was quite a, quite a fascinating vantage point. And it, it kind of reminded me of lions chasing antelopes and Middlesbrough scattering all over the place. I mean, we said last week that they had some really obvious weaknesses. They were really poor at pressing, the dead easy to play through. And it was all really apparent right from the, the first minute. And I know he's he's got problems up there at Woodgate. They've got injuries. They've got a, a pretty young squad. But there are some reasonable first-team players in there. They've got McNair. They've got a Sombolonga. They've got Dale Fry. They've got a, a, an agent, Johnny House, and it has to be said. And the setup of their team was just absolutely bizarre. The, the, the midfield three seemed to be wedged into the the centre circle and were completely outplayed by Leeds and I was having a look at their, their average positions on Scout yesterday and their left back Mark Bowler seemed to be playing as a sort of makeshift centre back and was the deepest of any Middlesbrough player throughout the game and and as far as I could see when they set up was supposed to be a, a wing back um, th- there's just no structure to that team at all and I think we might have called it didn't we that it was going to be a fairly easy day and it was going to be a fairly resounding win and you knew from the moment Bamford scored I have to say from that point the South Stand just thought it was in the bag and it was As did you Moscow you've been saying on all the other stuff that we've done this week that you absolutely thought from minute three that was it game done Yeah at no point did Middlesbrough look like they they had anything to touch so they they strangely congratulated Ashley Fletcher when he came off as substitute he was getting big congratulations from everybody on the bench and I couldn't think of a single thing he'd he'd done or a a touch he'd he'd had and the one thing I remember uh, Jonathan Woodgate getting happy about was when they managed to get a tackle in near our corner flag and he was he was really delighted about that but apart from that I sometimes look at opposition benches and they do seem to just have one lonely person standing there with the occasional Robbie Keane and, and compare it to Bielsa's bench with I know they they rack up the cards for it but there does seem to be a level of because Bielsa's organisation is so far ahead of anything Jonathan Woodgate can think of and yet he's got a a squad of about 20 people constantly fine-tuning and telling all these players what to do and you've got Jonathan Woodgate just stands there and watches and I was confused you'd change something you'd do something but there was nothing. There was no shift at all until about the 70th minute. Um, and even that was a kind of pointless tactical change. Leeds hadn't quite given it up by that point. But, you know, we're, we're going to start coasting to, towards the end. Um, and Fletcher, I mean, I, as I say, you, you you get a totally different viewpoint from, from the cheese wedge. But I wasn't really aware that he was on the pitch, I'm perfectly honest. And the front two just seemed to be completely cut adrift from the rest of the midfield. But again, we, we were saying this on, on episode one, that he's there with... Robbie Keane, who has you know little to no managerial experience, he's there with nobody else who who could say to him at some point, look, you need to do this, otherwise we are going to get a complete paste in today. The initial formation was a bizarre way to set up against Bielsa's team anyway. We're kind of asking for trouble, but it was apparent through the second half and and when it you know when it really did start to get messy that there was nobody there who really knew what to do or how to handle it. And I just cannot see it lasting for, for Woodgate up there. There was a bit of talk about Neil Warnock at the start of the week, which, you know, it's, it's kind of it's kind of where everybody goes when it's um, when it's desperate. But you'd sort of wonder if actually Borough are going to get forced down that route because it could well get to the point where it's a, a case of back Woodgate and go down or just dispense with all the, the you know, the, the nice ideas of how you could build from nothing and actually keep yourself in the division it didn't seem to me there was an awful lot worth salvaging from that Borough team there were, it's not like they were they were doing some nice attacking things but they were they were bad at the back or anything start to finish back to front there was not anything good about it like I said Fletcher and Asombolonga in theory is a good strike force but they didn't cause us a single problem throughout the game 
Are you all standing on board with us just saying Woodgate should probably just call it a day? Well, by all accounts, Gibson's sticking with him and, and he's going to stick with him. Good. Um, and, <laughs> and, well, well, yeah, and um, and it gives us a nice um, Boya Woodgate piece for the weekend, assuming he, he sees it through the next couple of nights. But you're right, it wasn't even like you saw the, the makings of a good defence there or the makings of an attack that will score goals. There was literally nothing. And it was they've gone from a team who you always thought should be pretty close to the top six, if not in it, to a team who... I'm not convinced any other championship club would want any of the players. Maybe Fry. I mean, he is a he is a good defender, and I think if you got him into a different environment, you'd, you'd have a very good player there. But there's certainly nobody else would want from that team. Not Daniel Ayala. That was that was rumored. No, that'll not be happening. Um, and I don't know. I mean, he'd surely be right up there with um, Nelson Oliveira in terms of players who who lead to, <laughs> the crowd at Leeds would be welcoming through the door with with open arms. I mean, he did his he did his classic Ayala performance on on Saturday, didn't he? But um, he he looks to have gone over the hill same way as Housen, who I always had a huge amount of time for when he he was at Leeds. He he's gone from being the Housen that, that we all remember to someone who who is pretty much on the downward slope now. And and as I say, I don't think there's a single player in that team that that Bielsa would be interested in working with because Ayala there were touches shades maybe of a career in WWE to follow this one yes yeah that, that's always been the way I mean when, when he was linked a couple of weeks back and I don't think there, there was anything in it again you just looked at the way he plays what he does and you thought it's so so much the opposite to how Bielsa I mean compare him and Ben White there's just no um no correlation between the two of them at all so no I don't I don't think that one will be happening and I don't think anybody will lose any sleep over it either very few contentious points throughout the game because it was it was a walk in the park really but do you think Phillips was lucky to stay on with that slightly industrial slide tackle uh, yes yeah I think that I think that was a red card it was what would you say reckless it was not um, under control he caught him on the ankle different stage of a game or in a different game I think he would probably have, have gone for that and I always, I always like not to be partisan and given at some point we're probably going to moan about West Brom's penalty on Monday night which was <clears throat> blatant dive then it's only fair to say that yeah Phillips should probably have gone for that but even so I kind of wonder how Leeds with 10 men would have done against Borough I still think they'd have had the measure of them I still think there were enough gaps and enough weaknesses in that Borough team that Bielsa would probably have found a way to play against them regardless but yeah he's suspended anyway this weekend for his fifth yellow card but I think that should have been a straight red really do you think he maybe fancied his birthday off (laughs) (laughs) birthday weekend yeah I think uh, timing was right I always remember Warnock saying that when Paul Connolly got sent off about two or three games before the end of the season he he was (laughs) said to us he obviously wants to start his summer holiday early but unfortunately he's now going to get back to back training sessions for about the next four weeks but no Phillips in that sort is he he'd, uh, I, I bet actually he'll be he'll be very very disappointed to not be playing at Huddersfield because that's his sort of game and that was Neymar's trick wasn't it have you ever noticed that Neymar is always suspended on his birthday is that right apparently so yeah you can look through the records always been suspended on his birthday because he fancies a trip back to Brazil well I mean it's not unheard of is it for players to pick games and dive in for, for yellow cards I can remember I think Pontus Janssen did that a couple of seasons back you know when he was running towards 15-20 yellow cards there was one point at which it was kind of it kind of felt that there was a, a somewhat a good time to take a yellow depending on on who was coming but I didn't realise Neymar was doing that for his birthday but in fairness it's as good a reason as any Maybe Calvin Phillips needs to get back to Wortley well it's a difficult flight it was the story of the um, of the end of the Monk season was all of Will Pontus Janssen be suspended for the playoffs and then we didn't get in them anyway. And he was, yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned Huddersfield there, then we move on towards that one this weekend. Yes. What do you make of that rivalry between the two the two clubs as, a, as an external third party? External third party, it's very, very one way, I think. It, it's one way in, in a way that I don't feel it kind of is with the, the Sheffield clubs. I think when Leeds play down at Wednesday or, or at Bramall Lane, it, it it is fairly intense and you do feel a bit of needle, but you don't get the sense of two crowds who've been waiting all year to for that fixture and been waiting for Leeds to come. It's, it's, a, it's a good fixture in the fixture list, but I think everybody kind of moves on from it um, fairly quickly. I've never got the sense that it's anywhere near as big a deal in Leeds as it is in Huddersfield, although I think everybody over here enjoys winning the game. I don't think any, any question of that. But no, I definitely wouldn't go down the route of Huddersfield's cup final, but I think if um, if it matters more to one side than the other, then it's definitely them. That'd be my perception anyway. We're going to win, aren't we, on the weekend, shouldn't we? Well, Phillips is missing. So the question is who's going to play in, in that uh, defensive midfield role. And I thought it was quite interesting when when he went off that Ben White sort of had a little shuffle forward into that area. Um, and he started to look over the past three or four games a, a little bit like Busquets, kind of bamba without the 
that horrendous fear that he's going to lose the ball and they're going to be left wide open and, and it's going to be goals galore. Um, it'd be quite a big call that to shift him, especially because you'd be taking him out of the back three and and, and risking unsettling that. And I, I'm not convinced that Bielsa will go down that route, but it is an option. And when you start to look around, I'm not sure who fits into that any better. I mean, Shackleton is really mobile, but it's not his it's not his role. I mean, he's very box to box and he likes likes attacking. For sure, I don't think he's going to be fit. He seems to be fractionally away from returning constantly, but still isn't quite there from from what I gather. So you start to look towards Stuart Dallas possibly, and beyond him, not really too many other options. So, but call that for Bielsa. Do you think Alfie McCalmont? He might just go straight with a kid and put him in. He's one of those that's really close, really close, and has been training um, with the first team for a long time, and and obviously has, has broken through with Northern Ireland as well. And I think if Bielsa was looking to the academy, then then he'd be the one. Yeah, I think that that would be the the fallback, and and you certainly wouldn't put it beyond Bielsa at all to, to pick Huddersfield away as the day for McCallum's debut but I, I think there might be other options he can look to first Is it right that Forshaw still has just this little uh, niggle on his hip that, that can't quite just get him over yeah, the line Yeah it's, it's kind of his groin and he he, he he is that close and has been close for, for ages and if you think back to when he was he was first injured Bielsa said that he thought he'd be back for the Derby game which was in September um, so literally out for a week a couple of weeks and in the end it's turned into to two two and a bit months and he's he's had some specialist treatment I think he was over to Ireland to to see somebody to try and help him out and I think it's just a case for him now of getting over that final little bit of pain um, and, and feeling that he's 100% right but I don't think he'll be he'll be fit for this weekend and, uh, and I'm not sure anybody's 100% certain when he will be Do you think if he's if he, when he is fit he'll come straight back into the team because he was obviously part of Bielsa's plans at the start of the season but since then we've fared pretty well without him yeah, I, I still feel like the other midfield position next to Cleek's kind of open. Roberts played there for, for a few games, was decent without being brilliant. You know, he, he played well, I thought, but not so well that you thought, right, you know, it's, it's his position going forward. And in the absence of Forshaw, and, and Bielsa does seem to prefer the idea of two eights rather than an eight and a ten, or, you know, sort of an out and out in Ganshi, as they, as they call them, um, not down under, but on the, the other side of the world. <laughs> uh, but he, he loves Forshaw, and he's always loved Forshaw, and he, he thought that... that he was his best player in his first pre-season. Of course, Forshaw broke his foot and was was injured for a lot of last season and, and had the same kind of issues that are, that are going on at the moment. But yeah, I, I think I think he probably will do. And I think, I definitely feel with him in the team, you get quite a nice rhythm there. I think him and Cleek fit together fairly nicely. I'm not sure it, it makes Leeds the most attacking team they could be. But um, at the moment, I don't really feel like they should be the most attacking team they, that they can be. I think they've got the, the balance just about right. Yeah, we look to be benefiting from not being quite as attacking this yeah. year, maybe. Yeah, slightly different on Saturday when you kind of feel that you can attack it well with absolutely no fear of what's going on behind you. But in the main, they've been a bit more reserved and um, and particularly at the end of games, that they're not taking risks when they're 1-0 up. They're not being not being ridiculous with, with tight score lines. It, it is all a bit more savvy. So this game, Huddersfield at the weekend, mm. what's it going to come down to? I was looking at their goals and they are incredibly weak from crosses, which in theory should suit Leeds because that is Leeds are not good at making making much of the crosses they produce, but they do produce a lot of them. So set pieces, crosses from open play, it's a definite way that you can you can get at Huddersfield. Uh, and obviously appear to have learned how to score from corners as well. Now the cliques second on Saturday although again that goes back to something we were talking about which is Middlesbrough's pressing and it was nicely worked and everything else but the amount of time he was given to to kind of shape and shoot from 20 yards was was ridiculous and I think I think better teams would have you know would not have folded in the way that, that Middlesbrough did um, on Saturday but Leeds took, took advantage of them they don't score a lot of goals Huddersfield they, they concede plenty they've got um, they've got Carlin Grant up front who scored 11 for them and, and actually has a really tidy finish on, on him and, and he he's a definite danger he's somebody you've, you've got to watch um, and, and very sharp when the ball comes to him good at going off the off the shoulder and, and getting in behind but there are goals to be had over there and you'd like to think that on the back of the Middlesbrough game that, that they'll be well placed to win and Fraser Campbell's a doubt as well for them up front, so that might change their attacking lineup. Yeah, yeah, he's had the, the odd goal here and there, but Grant's the one. Grant's the one that they'll they'll have to watch. And I think because of somebody like him, it may be another reason why Bielsa isn't too keen to drag White out of the, the centre of defence. Um, he's been so good there and, and they've been so consistent that it's an area you don't want to disrupt. Did a thing at Radio Leeds yesterday um, with a Huddersfield fan and they said their biggest worry is that if a game of football breaks out, that's when Leeds are going to be the biggest threat. Is that probably the best way to look at this game? I think so, but it's it's quite difficult to drag Leeds into anything else because they dominate the ball. They've got, they've got their style of play. I can't think of many games over 
period of 18 months where they've they've been bullied or or they've been forced to kind of go long ball or, or anything like that they do they do have a really good knack under Bielsa of getting a foothold and of making the opposition kind of dance to their tune and, and play the way they, they want to play but I definitely agree with that I think if it becomes open and becomes stretched then Huddersfield a team who who will leak goals and as I say from you know from out wide and, and defensively under crosses and set pieces there's a there's a certain weakness there it did seem to be the one risk on Saturday was how the first half didn't really have a lot to it. We were so much better than them that the players almost seemed confused about how to, to be that much better than the, the team that were playing. So there was a, a definite difference, not just because of Click's goal, but I think it was pointed out at half time. I don't know if it was a repeat of that Alex Ferguson team talk where he said, you know, lads, it's Tottenham. It's Jonathan Woodgate and Middlesbrough, like just go and just sort yourselves it. out. But yeah. there was there was a a part of the first half for about 15, 20 minutes where we just kind of we couldn't seem to get going and we're making our own mistakes, passes going out of play and players kind of shouting each other and it went really quiet Where from where I was watching. So there is that, if Huddersfield can can recreate some of that where we're not capable of, we're not, we don't understand what to do against such a terrible team, that might be their, their one thing. So there's some hope for you, Huddersfield fans. Play worse. Yeah. Be, it as, almost, be as bad as you can. It almost was too easy. And um, it was kind of like a psychological thing with the players are thinking we should be about eight goals up here and we've and we've only scored once. But you're right. I mean, the cleat goal was kind of the, the damn busting. And then second half, it just all clicked. Costa had his best game yet, I thought. And everybody played well. And like you say, the, the Leeds midfield absolutely murdered Middlesbrough. And, and in those that sort of scenario, you're going to win heavily. We called the Borough game with frightening levels of accuracy mm. in the show last week about a, a dominant home win. So what we prepared to say for the Huddersfield game, can we continue the, the streak? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Everything's there at the moment. Rhythm's there, good balance in the team. Phillips missing is a definite issue. Um, not because he's irreplaceable, but because it's very difficult to to play to the same level that, that he's been at. That, that's kind of how, how I feel with Casilla if um, if and when his, his ban for, the, for this racism charge kicks in. It, it's not that Mesley isn't a capable replacement and isn't a very good keeper in his own right. But when you're actually asked to do the the type of distribution that Casilla does and to be as good a last line of defence and a, a, as good a sweeper keeper as he is, then it, it, it is asking a lot and, and you need to you need to be good enough to do it. And there isn't really a kind of replica of Phillips in the squad. McCalmont, as, as um, Moscow was saying, is probably actually the closest that you'll find to an out-and-out defensive midfielder. So that's a concern and, and he definitely needs to, to get that decision right. But I just think that... that they're so leaky Huddersfield and they've had so so little in the way of form this season that they're, they're up against a team who are scoring goals, who are not conceding, who know exactly how to play and, and what to do. And if anything, are more dangerous away from home than, than they are at home. So it does kind of point to an away win. It points to it, but will it be one? I think so, yes. I do too. I think narrow leads win. I think possibly more than narrow. I'm getting confident after last week. Happy to accept narrow. Last minute, off someone's, uh, off someone's arse is fine. No, I'm feeling big. I'm feeling another big margin and they won't score. Right, the next instalment of Team of the Decade then, Phil. You picked this on your athletic article. We're running through it. We're drilling you, putting you under the microscope. As we close out the decade, then why not pick the best team from the last 10 years? We did the centre-backs and the keeper last week. We went for Rob Green and Janssen and Bartley. Mm -hmm. To much consternation, there was a lot of debate about Liam Cooper on Twitter. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I did say at the time that I couldn't really justify leaving him out, but um, but I did anyway. Yeah, solid argument. So we're going to move from the centre of the pitch out wide now. We're going to pick your two full backs because we're in a four four two to your two wide wingers as well. So four players to get through. Right back, you've gone for Luke Ayling. Yeah, a little bit like the goalkeeping position. On neither side of the defence has there been anybody who stood out as a top-class player um, in the sense of, of someone who you looked at and thought, well, they'll go on to the Premier League and, and they duly disappear and, and go on to, to bigger and better things. But the thing that always interests me about Ailing was how open and honest Lee Johnson was about the, the fact that they made a mistake in selling him to Leeds. I, I, I don't know what his exact value was, but you're talking several hundred thousand pounds, which is not a huge amount of money these days in, in the Championship. And he was let go because... Bristol City needed the money for one, but but also they, they were shifting their formation. He'd played on the right-hand side of a back three. They were moving to a back four and, and Johnson and the other coaching staff down there weren't convinced that Ailing was going to be going to be good enough to, to play there, which is slightly bizarre when you think about how, how good he's been. But 
with the exception of Sam Byram, I don't think anybody in the last 10 years has been as, as strong in that position as him or has been as good at getting up and down the field. I mean, I, I think he he probably epitomises as much as anybody the way the team and, and individual players have developed physically under Bielsa and, and the extent to which you have to run, the extent to which you have to cope with kind of extreme physical demands to, to be any good in, in a Bielsa side and, and to keep your place. And it's not that he's full of assists and it's not that he's he's full of creativity, but he, he is somebody that you'd very rarely have to, to worry about. And he has, he has his off days like everybody in the Championship does. But I do think he comes in quite comfortably as the best right back that Leeds have had in, in that position. And, and I, I only think that, that Sam Byron would push him close. How much do you think Bielsa pushes players beyond the levels of let's say, other normal managers? Physically, massively, yeah. And, and they all say that at, at Thorpe Arts. They all say that they're fitter than they've, they've ever been. And, and he's pushed them to fitness levels that they didn't necessarily think they could reach and, and certainly levels of weight that they didn't think they were able to reach and, and actually probably never wanted to reach <laughs> particularly. I mean, Ailing was the first person who ever spoke to us about that and, and was saying that, you know, he, he came back bang on weight. He was he was really happy with his condition. He felt he'd done everything that was in the diet plan and he had because it had been set out by, you know, before Heckenbottom had, had left, they'd all gone away and and followed these plans. And then he came back and the first thing he was told was that he was it was a good half a stone too heavy. Um, and, and it was kind of, back to the drawing boards and, and straight into a really hard nutritional period. And I mean, he, he look, he, he's quite skeletal at, at the best of times. Uh, and again, another guy that you didn't think there was any weight to come off. Uh, but he, 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 like everybody else, has, I think, kind of privately quite enjoyed it. I, m- I imagine it's been hellish in moments, but I think they, they like the idea of a, how hard they're pushing themselves, but B, how, how well it's working as well. And and as I say, I think he's been a mainstay under Bielsa and, and deservedly so. And, and and he hasn't ever played as well as he did under Monk. I mean, that was his, his best season to date. Uh, but he's had injuries as well, which which haven't helped him. But when he's been at his best, he's been as good as any right back in the league, I think. Anybody fancy a Bielsa pre-season and nutritional plan? I feel like I need one. <laughs> I feel like more than half a stone would come back on my report that needs to needs to be shifted. Given, yeah, yeah, like you say, Luke Ayling and like, even Stuart Dallas has managed to lose weight on it and they're like the skinniest men in the world somehow. So, well, uh, Dal- I mean, Dallas and Cooper are big friends and they, they used to catch up you know, with their, their partners every weekend after games and somebody was telling me that they went for months last season without having a drink because it, it, kind, of, it was kind of like that mentality of nobody wants to embarrass them themselves and, and everybody kind of feels on under orders and 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 under watchful eyes. Um, so they all have been ultra ultra professional. And no, I, I wouldn't fancy Bielsa pre-season either. Be a good piece for the Athletic, which ends in my funeral, <laughs> ends, in, ends in death. <laughs> uh, Stuart Dallas, would you fancy him on form alone? Because you could. There's an argument for him at right back, isn't there? Yeah, I, the way he was playing this season, I don't think Ailing would have got into the team if if he hadn't shifted. But it was a. It was a small number of games. It's kind of small sample size, for want of a of a better phrase. Um, so so difficult to put Dallas in there. But I, I do think, without going off on a tangent, I do think that they've lost something from Dallas since moving him from from that position. But Ailing's been good enough to to justify playing there. But I think he he takes it for me. Any outriders? Paul Connolly, Lee Peltier. <laughs> Well, this is it, you see. You, you, you go through, we're chatting on about this with them um, goalkeepers and, and centre-backs, and there are so many that you can push to one side without even giving much thought to what they did or, or how it went for them. An awful lot of misses in the transfer market, but um, but Ealing definitely a hit. I do feel like Sam Byram deserves a, a bit of praise for yeah. the, the season he had when he won three Player of the Year awards. Player of the Year, Young Player of the Year, Fans Player of the Year, or was it Players Player of the Year? So it's those three. And he was our best player, despite yeah. it being his debut season and him being right back. And he was essentially playmaker at right back, desperately trying to drag us above Neil Warnock's level. <laughs> and at that time, I used to... He was definitely our standout player. And we ended up, with Chilino offered him a, a pay-cut in the end. I do wonder if he'd not been managed by the managers he had at that time, Warnock in particular, running him into the ground that season. But I don't imagine giving him any particular hints or tips on how to improve, which is probably what he needed at 18 more than he needed to be playing every game, basically because Lee Peltier was letting Warnock down. You know, we screwed him over. I think <laughs> absolutely, yeah. I still he, look he at his very, career now was, and think... It was very good. I mean, there's a funny story with Byram. He he made his debut over at... Um, first, first, first team appearance over at Farsley in pre-season. And we were being interviewed afterwards and um, someone said to, to Warnock, another of the journalists who was with me, said, what about your, your young right-back? You know, I'm not familiar with him. And, 
And uh, Warnock started talking about him and then said to me, what, what, what's his name? I said, oh, it's, it's Sam Byron. He said, all right, yeah. So, I mean, it, from Warnock's point of view, he'd come from absolutely nowhere. And um, at the time, he was still trying to sign Peltier and didn't really have a right back and, you know, the usual the usual thing. He was excellent, Byron. And that season in particular was really impressive. And, and yeah, I mean, the simple fact was he was asked to take a pay cut by Chilino. He refused to take one, as he quite rightly should have done, and was sold to to West Ham and hasn't done a right lot since although you know got himself a good move in the summer um, and I still think there's a, a very very good player there but I don't think in terms of impact he's he's done more than Ailing has No surprises that it's not Paul Connolly a, a guy who you and I Michael saw in a kebab house in Bristol when, you know, when, what was the score that day was it 3-2 or something or? I can't remember did we win I, I, I forget it was a fairly you know but yeah maybe the, the changing <laughs> attitude there between right backs of someone in a, in a kebab house after yeah. a game and Luke Ayling going home to have his boiled chicken was that, was that the 3-1 win when we all almost got caught in the snow on the way home I think that's the closest I've ever come to spending the night on the on the M1 that evening I think Redfern was caretaker yeah well, whenever it was we were in a shared travel lodge and that was not pleasant the day and after, Connolly anyway. was in a kebab house marvellous same one as us though Uh, celebrity brush anyway on to left back then Charlie Taylor a guy who left under something of a cloud but showed showed great promise and he's going to be remembered best for what um, he's going to be remembered best for leaving, isn't he? I mean, that was kind of the kind of the way it all it all boiled down in the end. And it was obvious that he was leaving from a year out when he requested a transfer. They weren't getting anywhere with his contract. It was Chilino again, and wages were an issue. And they were, I think, the negotiations were were hard work and, and ultimately went nowhere. And obviously, he didn't play in that game at Wigan. The story was that he'd refused to play. That was certainly what came out of the club. And Monk gave him a very very good going over afterwards publicly. Um, was it about loyalty? Well, yes. And I mean, it's not the done thing, is it? But I always feel slightly sympathetic in those situations in as much as the the season's bombed out. Taylor was excellent during it. They'd somehow blown that chance of getting into the playoffs. So it was a total dead rubber over at Wigan where the only point of any interest was whether or not Wood was going to score his 30th goal of the season, which which he did. So, you know, it, it's not good to kind of refuse to play, but you do understand from a professional point of view that it might not seem like the most prudent thing to do to, to put yourself through that when you've got Burnley who are about to sign you for, you know, X amount and, and pay you pay X amount on, on your contract. But, I mean, he, he was kind of thrown into it, Taylor, because... We had Steve Warnock in the side, who again decent decent left back. Although I don't think we saw the the best of him particularly. He was he was he was very steady and somebody who Chilino unilaterally decided was to be sold in the the January transfer window in 2015 without really warning anybody and without really discussing it over uh, with anybody. Took took the money, um, let him go, and there was nobody from Neil Evans' point of view who was more suited to that position than than Taylor and. I mean, he'd, he'd kind of grown over the years from the, the skinny kid who'd made his debut against Crystal Palace and, and laid on that goal, but then gone off on loan to various places, Bradford and, and Inverness, into this physically strong, hardcore left-back. And, and somebody who Uwe Rosler always used to go on about the, the strength and the reliability of his, his engine. I remember Rosler saying that some of the lines, of, I find it hard to come to terms with just how fit he is because I can play him in pretty much every minute of, of every game and his batteries are, are never, ever going to run out but he, he was a good overlapping fullback. he was very good defensively his, his crossing wasn't was, wasn't hugely accurate or, or hugely incisive but he was always there he was always providing an option and again in a position where Leeds have been seriously weak at times you know and in, in over the past sort of 10 years or so um, he was somebody who stood out quite clearly I thought as a, as a very very good left back despite how it all ended Further forward then a guy who's going to put a smile on your face as soon as you say his name Max Gradle yeah. I think this was quite an easy one for me. However, how long did he stay around at the start of this decade? Not a huge amount of time. He went very early on in Grayson's final season. It was that period in 2012 where everybody was kind of starting to see the writing on the wall. So Housen had gone in the January window to Norwich. Um, Snodgrass had gone in the summer to <laughs> Norwich. Um, and then Gradle took himself back to, to France. I mean, Gradle and Snodgrass on either wing uh, was the easiest pick going for me. I, I, they were straight into the team without thinking twice. And I mean, I think the best thing I can say about either of them is that I think they'd both have fitted in comfortably under Bielsa I think Snodgrass physically would have had to have, have gone up a level but the one thing they always said about Gradle apart from his talent was that he he was physically very very strong um, very fit very good defensively as, as he was in attack and I mean he just scored for fun in that 2010-11 season I think uh, he, he was a, on the evening post he was a player of the year in that season and he was one of the people who put, pushed them so close to, to the playoffs and there hasn't been anybody to rival him out there since or, or before he, he was 
was an absolute steal at the price he came in, which was about two hundred grand or, or something along those lines from from Leicester, and another one who went too soon, really, and and that's basically true of all the good players who've come through from Leeds in, in this kind of era is that the, the ones who've shown most promise have, have been lost and they've never managed to get away from that trend. We covered this, didn't we? We had a question about this on one of our podcasts and we said Bielsa would have absolutely adored Max Gradle because he just he was relentless. 100%. We're saying yeah. just dropping those, was it 18, 19 goals he scored that season? Drop yeah. those goals into this team from the wing and we'd probably win the league by about 15 points. Well, I, I still close. maintain that... that Bielsa's front line is not as good as Grayson's, not as good as the best that he had back then. Bielsa's defence is, is so much better, it's almost untrue. And Grayson would have killed for a, a record like this. But that kind of front five of that contained Gradle and Snodgrass, and you also had Becky and, and Housen chipped in with a with a lot of goals as well, um, and, and and a lot of assists in, in that sort of forward line midfield position was really dangerous and was about the best in, in the championship and, and Gradle was crucial in that in the same way that, that Snodgrass was and yeah I, I, that's that was my first thought with him really I thought of all the players in this era he's probably the one that Bielsa would have looked at and said absolutely we'll have him in my team everything he does is everything I want Cheeky bid do you think he's worth it I know he's captain now but it was one of GFH's big claims wasn't it we're, uh, we're definitely going to bring Max Gradle back we could bring him back they did get in touch with Gradle, but they could never afford him. And, and it was always the one that was dangled out as, you know, we're, we're trying to do this, we're trying to get it done because they knew he was a, a, a huge crowd favourite. But like everything that GFH did, or most of what GFH did, there's very little substance to it. Um, and and it, it never went anywhere. I mean, it, it feels like the boat sailed really with Gradle. He, he had that spell at Bournemouth. It didn't go particularly well. He had injuries. He, he didn't play a huge amount. And he, he's also got, I mean, he's, He's got dependence. He, you know, his, his siblings rely rely on him very, very heavily, and put a lot of pressure on him. I, I spoke to Glenn Snodden for the piece that I did um, on the the athletic site, and and he said that when you spoke to Gradle, you became aware of of how much pressure there was in the background to look after brothers and sisters and and various family members. I'm not quite sure what the the scenario was with his parents and and what had happened, but essentially the money um, that Gradle was earning and and the career that he had was paying for an awful lot of people to to be comfortable. So life in France is probably convenient for him, um, and he, he he is doing good things over there. He's he's very well thought of. I don't think that one's going to rear its head again, but he's somebody who you wouldn't object to seeing back. He's taken that responsibility and run with it to lose. I think because I was reading last yeah. year that he's he's captain and basically the difference between them staying up or being relegated is his goals and his assists and he's in a team that nobody else is really contributing points he just wins them all yeah absolutely carrying them that was the case last season I haven't had a look at the table recently so I don't know how it's going going this time round but huge amount of pressure on him and actually a trip to Toulouse has to be in the diary I think he'd be good fun to to speak to and I interviewed him at length after um, the season when he won the player of the year award and he spoke about the game against Bristol Rovers when he got sent off and, and how much he was panicking at that point about the season all falling apart and, and him kind of going from the club with this reputation of the guy who ruined it when it was all there to, to be had. And I think he felt that very acutely. I think he he had 60 minutes in, in, in the dressing room and, or 60 minutes wherever he was sitting watching it where he genuinely thought that was going to happen. And I never got the impression that even though you know, when he went back to France, I'm sure there was a good wage in it for him. I never got the impression that he was he was in it for the money at all. I think he needed the money, and his family needed the money. But there was far more more to it than that. And and him going along with Snodgrass and House was just symptomatic of the complete drain of ambition around 2012, which we could all feel, the players could all feel, and the better players amongst them just didn't really want to be part of. And you mentioned Snodgrass there, um, who's on your other side. I guess we can look at the other candidates and deal with sort of wings as a whole after we've done Snodgrass, but he's a natural fit for that left-hand side, I guess. Yeah, I I defer to Eddie Gray on this one, who reckons that he's the best player Leeds have had since they were relegated in 2004. I, I think there are potentially a, a few in this current team who are going to, going to challenge him for that and, and look as as capable guys like Phillips and, and Ben White as well but it it was that old joke wasn't it they used to produce the t-shirts keep calm and, and give it to Snodgrass and, and even Snodden was saying that he said you'd, you'd have days where nothing was working it wasn't going right and you would be stood on the touchline thinking just give it to Snoddy and see what he does and I always think of that game at Burnley 2011 it would have been when Leeds were woeful for about 70 minutes Snodgrass scored twice got away with a 2-1 win and that was kind of symptomatic of of what he did and and again I I don't think 
that he was itching to get away from Leeds because he he wanted more money. He he definitely wanted to play in the Premier League, and it was it was an ambitious thing, ambition thing with Snodgrass more than anything. But he was actually pretty vocal during the summer he left in saying that the. He wasn't seeing anything from Bates or from the board that suggested that Leeds were going to compete. And in those circumstances, he couldn't see much point in, in sticking around. And the same went for Housen, who went the, the previous January to Norwich. He he ideally would have stayed till the end of the season when his contract was up, seen how the, the land lied and made a decision on, on where he wanted to go. But again, it wasn't being done because he wanted to cash in as a free agent elsewhere and, and make big cash. It was because he didn't think they were going anywhere. And quite honestly, they were all right. You don't sell your captain. That was the phrase at the time, wasn't it? You don't. Um, and you don't sell your captain when he's as, as good a player as, as Housen is and when he's pulling in £2 million. I mean, Snodgrass went for three million quid to Norwich. And when you think of the way fees have risen exponentially in the championship, it looks like an absolute pittance that, and it, and it and it kind of was. Uh, and the, and there was that period where McCormack very nearly went to Middlesbrough, um, and at the time the, the the mooted fee was about two million quid. And then you get a couple of years further down the line, and he's going to Fulham for fifty million pounds. And I think that's the added frustration. It's not only that the club have lost so many good players; it's that they've lost them for such paltry amounts of cash as well and, and amounts of cash that in the grand scheme haven't made any difference so we've had that team that forward line that you're talking about we we dropped lucky really that we managed to get what was essentially a, a promotion winning attack for not very much money which we then frittered away it was like it was our one opportunity when we should have gone actually no we've been lucky enough to get this attack for almost nothing let's just add a little bit to the defense and then the ambition is there that we can we can push up but as it was we got people like paul Connolly. And it was never going to be enough to to cover the gaps. It was the the miserliness of of the way Bates was running things at the time as well. I think McCormack always gets the contract thing thrown at him and the criticism for always coming back with a another another contract. But the wages, the wage rises they were getting off of Bates were not big, um, as I understood it. They were getting compared to what they could have got in the Premier League, where they would multiply their wages substantially. They were getting like a few extra hundred quid a, a week was the offer you'd get from Bates. And, and so players like McCormack and, and Snodgrass kind of, they took that because they wanted to stay, but the it reached a point. I remember the the summer when Snodgrass did leave, as well as the quote about how can you sell your captain, say how can you say you're going for promotion and then you sell your captain. The other one was um, about the assurances he was he was being given. Warnock was trying to sell all sorts. Well, if, if it doesn't go right, you'll get your move to, to the Premier League. He just said, I can't, I'm keeping my career in my hands. I can't yeah. put my career in... My future is not up to Neil Warnock, and that's what it came down to. It was just they, they lasted as long as they could could at the club, taking what they were being given and the way they were being treated until it got to the point where it's like it would be so much easier just to go and play in the Premier League now. They, they used to say to Snodgrass that they considered him to be an eight million pound player, ten million pound player, and, and he would say to them quite rightly, "Well, in that case, pay me." the wage of a £10 million player to which the answer was always ah, well no we're not going to do that but equally you're, you're going to stick around here and, and we're not going to sell you and, and you're right he said the same about Bates he said I'm not I'm not prepared for him to decide where I go and, and what I do if, if I want to leave then I'm, I'm going to leave and again really good player lost in a summer where the team was getting flooded with the greatest respect to, to you know with guys like Varney and I mean I remember Warnock saying that that he thought Varney could replace Snodgrass and <laughs> it's I know you'd, you you kind of laugh but at the same time you do think why you know why why did any of us take it back then why I remember writing pieces about that and and it just you know looking back at it now it looks completely it was completely ridiculous and it looks completely ridiculous but of course you had Warnock and Warnock had this great record in the championship and you thought well it might just be that he can he can get it together again but you quickly found out that things were falling apart, apart behind the scenes and, and it turns out that the players who left and the players that decided that there, there was no particular future with that setup and, and that squad were, were spot on and, and could see what was coming and preempted it by, by going and you know it's always the talk when players leave of will Leeds pass them on the way up and I kind of think if you'd said that to Housen in 2012 we'll pass you on the way up well he's still kind of waiting isn't he it's it's never happened um, and likewise with Snodgrass and Delph and, and others you know they ultimately they, they made the right decision it's what we lost as well when we're talking about how good these players were the simple joy of going to Welland Road alright so Simon Grayson's team in the championship could not defend that was a problem but turning up and seeing that forward line with Gradle and Snodgrass either side Becchio in the middle house and behind you had Summer on the bench when he was fit 
there was fun. Fun's the word. Do you remember that game at Burnley where they were 2 0 down at half time, 1 3 2? And it just, you know, it's just kind of electric second half. It, Snodgrass and, would give you step overs. Gradle would just run at everybody. Becchio, wherever the ball was in the box, he'd, he'd score. I remember the, the his, we'll talk about strikers on a future episode, but it would, his last season when he was scoring Penenkas after. Uh, head putting, heading the ball off of the goalkeeper's forehead just it all just seemed great and I think you know we talk about the circumstances of them leaving but sometimes just going back and watching even before he came to Leeds when he was at Livingston the videos of, of Snodgrass not racing past people but somehow just beating everybody on the pitch three times and doing something incredible is great to look back on I think that's a really good point you've made there that it kind of encapsulates everything that's gone on that Leeds United became quite a joyless club for quite a long time pre Bielsa. Yeah, which is really which is never the way it should be around here. And actually, sat in the cheese wedge, you you, you feel it more when you're in other parts of the ground than you do in in the press box. And Dan will probably agree with me on this because we sit in the um, in the gantry together at games. It's not sanitised up there because the atmosphere is always really good. At, at, at Ellen Road, but you're just that little bit removed from actually being in the thick of it. And the atmosphere down in the in the cheese wedge in the corner and between the East Stand and the South Stand was absolutely brilliant on Saturday. There's kind of this rabid engagement at the minute where people are people are loving it, like properly loving it. And 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 as I say, from from Bamford's header onwards, you, you knew that they knew the game was won. They they knew that that Leeds were going to going to do the business, and it just is back to the point where people actually want to attend. People aren't forcing themselves to go. They they do want to want to be at the games and, and yeah like players like Snodgrass and so on are, are guys that you you wanted to go and watch I mean he, he's quite interested in Snodgrass because he, he had quite a hard upbringing he, he grew up in, in inner city Glasgow and when he was at Livingston he, he they played under a coach called Alan Preston who I'd spoke to back when he signed and he was telling me that for like Snodgrass was terrible at timekeeping and had no concept to begin with of the idea that you for a proper professional game you couldn't literally walk in 15 minutes before and he said for his first game for his debut he appeared 10 minutes before kickoff. and Preston <laughs> said to him where have you been then Snodgrass in all seriousness said to him well I'm here. <laughs> What's the problem? You know, I'll get changed and you know I'll be ready for kickoff. And, and it was this case of realizing that he had no idea about what you had to do, how you had to live, how you had to to look after yourself. And I suspect the best thing he ever did was to come south and to to kind of cut himself off from all that and to get into the bubble of of being a professional footballer. Um, and I mean, he's a he's had a terrific career. And he's done all right, yeah. Plenty of others that didn't make the cut, the likes of Jimmy Kebe, went, who came in with a bit of hype attached to him, but yeah, no. Well, I, I did a I did a little list yesterday because I'm always conscious with this of of being caught out and somebody saying, "Oh, what about him?" And you think, "Oh God, I didn't think about him." But as as best I could see, there was Jimmy Kebe, there was Lloyd Sam, there was Jerome Thomas, um, Cameron Stewart, Pedrasa, briefly, um, Harry Sacco, uh, Andros Townsend. Remember Andros Townsend? No. Never heard of him. <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, he famously came in for a couple of months, then got a better offer from Birmingham, who were about to make the playoffs. Kind of realised that, um, I think, kind of realised that the chances of getting promoted under Warnock in that season were the, the equivalent of what, like, Nando's opening on the moon. And so, literally, did talk his way out of a half season loan and, and went to St Andrews as well. And I mean, again, he could have been a very good player for Leeds, wasn't a very good player for Leeds, and, and just falls into the category of those that you can instantly forget. I'm waiting for you to mention my favourite, Jordan Bataka, has not been brought up. Why? <laughs> Moscow guy. maintains he would have been the best player we ever had. If you hadn't had Steve Evans bullying him for no reason, the, which he did, if you remember when he brought him on in the last minute losing away in uh, Watford in the FA Cup yes. and then pinned the whole defeat on him when he, he'd not even touched the ball. But that was I was sitting in the, the northeast corner when Bataka came up and it was it was like when he came on the pitch <laughs> into a Steve Evans team. It's like Eddie Gray. It was stars <laughs> fell from the sky. Compared yeah. compared to everything else I was watching, he would come into the corner in front of us in the second half and he would beat people and then he would stick the ball in the cop and I would be I'd be like, well at least he beat somebody. It was the only thing there was to watch. So I always I always have a little soft spot for for Jordan that uh, he came and he, he did a little bit of what we're talking about with, with Snodgrass that finally there's somebody with that a sense of, of fun who is doing something that is not just going grinding me down. Good guy, um, half-decent <laughs> half player. The best um, you can I say. Think. No, I, I, I genuinely have nothing too critical to say of Bataka. No. He was he was all right. Um, and, I mean, the, the Watford game was ridiculous. I mean, it, it wasn't, in fairness to Evans, it wasn't a case of pinning the defeat to him, but he, he, he basically said afterwards, 
the only reason he's in the squad and the only reason I've played him is because I literally have nobody else. Um, that's how, how poor he's been in training or that's how bad his attitude is. And sometimes it's quite nice to see a bit of honesty like that, but I did think that was well over the top. It ended up with them having to do, I think Bataka and Evans had to do like a, they were doing video interviews where they'd, they'd made it up. And it did seem like Bataka maybe had the upper hand in that when he was talking about how he'd, he'd gone into the office and basically told Steve Evans to, to stop. So I always felt bad for him, but... Yeah, and by that point, Evans was in a fairly substantial position of weakness, knowing that Chilino was going to do what Chilino always did and bullet him at the end of the end of the season. But yeah, that was very messy. Just to save you abuse on Twitter as well, oh, yes, yeah. we should clear up that you consider Pablo to be a central player in this, in this team, yes, as, as opposed to a winger, because people are going to say, you've not mentioned Pablo. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Although, even if, um, even if Pablo was playing out wide... I would still stick with Snodgrass and Gradle. You see, however, this, however, when we get round to central midfielders uh, next week, there might be a surprise. This is the limitation I was going to say, Phil, of your four-four-two system. It is, it's, it's not fluid enough. You should have gone with the diamond if you want a, an accurate representation of Leeds in the 2010s. A miserable diamond <laughs> <laughs> really would have. Gradle is the defensive tip, or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Well, we look forward to grilling you on the forwards. Then next week we'll do that. The central players as well. Yeah. Excellent. If you want to get in touch with us, by the way, we should say we have a WhatsApp number, so it would be lovely to hear from you because we have heard from Thomas regarding the transfer window. I'll give you the number after this. Is there a possibility that in January we make Helder Costa, Jack Harrison or Meslier an early permanent signing? And could this then be, if what Marcelo has been saying, that Jack Clark is playing at a level that can play? Could this then be that we say look, we've made these permanent, he'll get more game time now in the second half of the season, or if this is a possibility to then even bring in another lone player. A few ways to, to answer this. Um, the first is to say that even if you were to convert Costa or Harrison or Mesley into a permanent signing, it doesn't free up any loan space in the squad because you still have five loanees um, if you if you only convert one of those and five is your limit in, in a matchday squad. You can have as many loanees as you like in your squad. Um, it's not that you can't sign 10, 15 loanees, it's just that EFL rules limit, to you, limit you to five on a matchday, which is why Clark has been the odd one out and has been pretty much estranged from the squad. The other thing to say is that I, I think it's highly likely that Clark will go back to, to Tottenham. Certainly people I've spoken to expect that that will happen, which makes sense given how little he's he's played. And I get the impression that he's actually very keen at the moment to find out how the land lies for him under Mourinho down there. I don't think he would expect to play for Spurs. I don't expect to go back and play, but I think very keen to find out whether Mourinho likes him, rates him, thinks of him as a, as a, a decent prospect. And it doesn't really seem to be in anyone's interest for Clark to stick around for another six months where he plays sort of 20, 25 minutes away at, at Luton or or whatever it is. Costa, they, they definitely won't make permanent because Costa was a bit of a, not a cheat, but it was a bit of a workaround for FFP rules. They didn't want to pay a fee for him last summer because they were, the, the FFP limit was so, the, the profit and sustainability limits were so tight and they were so close to it and um, that they would, they would have breached had they done that. So the way that one will work is that he's um, agreed a four-year contract at Leeds um, at the end of this season and Leeds will pay in instalments over, in four instalments over the course of that deal. The first one coming next summer, which will obviously fall into the next accounting period rather than this um, FFP window. Harrison, likewise, too expensive to sign at the moment um, and only one they would do if they, they went up. But they do have an option there and, and that could be done. And I don't think I don't think now would be the time necessarily to do a permanent deal for Mesley either, who hasn't played, but almost certainly will play if um, if Casilla is banned. I mean, from what I'm told, Bielsa has already decided that that will be the case, that he will go for young, largely unproven French teenager, which isn't that much of a surprise because if you think back to last season when Blackman broke his leg and Peacock Farrell was injured before the Bristol City game and he was offered emergency goalkeepers by the club, um, it's it's not a great market because Premier League clubs don't loan to the Football League on an emergency basis. So you're pretty much looking at third-choice keepers from the Championship down. So therefore, who do you who do you really want to go for? And Bielsa's attitude was, I'll go for Will Huffer and he did and Leeds won the game and that's, um, that's pretty much him and and in the same way if Clark goes back I think you'll see Jordan Stevens come into the picture rather than Leeds going for anybody else to, to replace Clark directly and quite honestly there, there is no point in them going for a sixth loan signing for the second half of the season otherwise they're just in the same position that they've been in now with, with one person who cannot be picked if you'd like to follow in Thomas's footsteps and get your voice here on the Ville Hay show then go to the squareball.net forward slash 
WhatsApp and that will take you straight through on WhatsApp to uh, queue up like our number and everything. Leave us a voice memo so we can play your voice out on the podcast. Uh, rest of the transfer window then, Phil. Um, Nketiah is going to be staying. They hope so. Yeah, they, they definitely hope so. He's obviously fit off the bench on, on Saturday again. He needs to be playing more than he is from Arsenal's point of view. But it, even though Emery has gone down there, it, it, if he went back to Arsenal in January, and, and they could recall him because it, as it stands, he, he's highly unlikely to have played enough minutes to stop them activating the, the recall clause that, that sits in his loan deal. If he goes back, I don't think he'll play for the first team down at Arsenal. I think he'll go. he would go out on loan again and, and you'd be talking somewhere like Bristol City who are still ultra keen in I keen on him as, as they were in the summer when Leeds signed him and realistically I, I think all sides will agree that it, it's he's probably as well to stick with a club who look like they might well be going up and, and who if you know if, if he gets a run is, is likely to get a decent bit of game time problem for him is permanently getting ahead of Bamford and it has to be said that, that Bamford is probably Bamford's position is probably more watertight now than it was when everybody was clamouring for um, Niketia to, to get a game and I think he's probably got a, a stint on the bench coming up but the window pretty much rests on him if he, if he goes back they'll have to find another striker they, they cannot they cannot go through the second half of the season with Bamford alone in part you're risking the you know the run of games without a goal but you're also risking injury and, and he had a couple last season and they would be left very short in that area so that will pretty much dictate what goes on next month if Niketia goes back I, th- I think they'll do a striker if he doesn't it honestly wouldn't surprise me if they don't do anything at all, even no. if Casilla gets banned. No Vidra? No, and there are any number of reasons for this. Firstly, if he's at £7 million quid, as was being mooted early in the week, Leeds don't have the money to do that, it would be far too expensive. His wage would be right up there with the highest earners as well, so again, a, another issue. Fitness-wise, how long would he take to get up to Bielsa's sort of speed? I mean, he, he's he's barely playing for Burnley. I think he was on the bench last night um, against Man City, but he's he's done very little in the, the time that he's been there. And you could imagine, <laughs> a bit like Izzy Brown, you could imagine Vidra getting up to speed as everybody flies off on holiday in, in early June. But the, but the biggest thing with him is that when Leeds tried to sign him, and again, this you know this is what I've been told from the Leeds end, but I, I do think it's true. His, his lack of enthusiasm for the move was so apparent that when they finally spoke to him, you remember him turning up in Leeds, being pictured in Leeds um, outside the station, pub opposite, the bar opposite the road from the station. And on that Friday, he was basically trying to get to speak to Bielsa, who didn't want to see him, um, or somebody else at, at the club. And eventually Angus Kinnear did speak to him because it had been running for so long and he hadn't shown that much interest in it but it was getting to the point where he needed a club and, and he needed a move and he was he was basically asked are you excited about this move to which he said something on the lines of well I did hope I'd move to the Premier League but you know such is life and you know I'd, I'd think about taking this and I think Leeds' attitude towards the end was he's not that interested he's not that bothered it's a lot of money and actually we shouldn't be burning it on somebody who's, who's taking that sort of approach to the, the offer of a transfer here so he was left alone. They they went for Bamford in the end, and the rest, as they say, is history. And and on the basis of that alone, I don't think at any price Leeds would go back for Vidra. I just don't think it's a deal they would ever do because of the way that one all all kind of fell apart. Um, so, so after he, a year in Burnley's reserves, he might be a bit more a uh, bit more eager to to get some game time. You would yeah, think. Well, it's funny that isn't it? That that tends to be what um what changes changes everybody's attitude towards these things. Um, but no, I think. I think a quiet month is is probably ahead. Although I, I, st- I don't know if any of you have watched Money Heist on Netflix, but I started watching it last week. And the guy who is in charge of the heist is such a spit of Victor Orta that I'm actually convinced that it is Victor Orta. And th- the good news is that if they pull off this bank robbery and they get away with the banknotes, Leeds are going to have a transfer kit of about <laughs> 9 billion euros. So they might, FFP though. They might be able to do Abel Hernandez and go up. Yeah. <laughs> Just back to Vidra though, you, we were saying on our podcast, neither of you, uh, Michael or Moscow, want him. Nah, you've turned us down once, more or less. Scorned lover. Yeah, it's exactly. quite right. Don't go back. If, if you don't fancy it, it's... Um, it's quite nice to hear that because that's one of Finney Jones's old anecdotes of him signing and they said they'd had a, a guy at Elland Road the week before he, he sort of didn't really fancy it, wasn't sure and he sort of said, is that guy mad? Where do I sign? I, I can't wait to play for Howard Kendall and, and all that, all this other stuff. <laughs> is there anybody else? Because we do seem to be locked into this this cycle of it's Vidor or Gale, it's Vidor or Gale, it's Vidor or Gale. Is there anybody else in the world we could possibly sign? They do like um, Rian Brewster over at Liverpool and I think the most likely um, alternative to Niketia if Niketia was to go is 
a similar sort of player, so Premier League youngster, somebody who who can come out in in, in that guise. The problem is, as with Niketia, Liverpool would want Brewster to play, and I think particularly if he was coming to Leeds, they'd probably want a fairly cast iron guarantee that he was going to play because there's no no real value to him apart from working and training under um, Bielsa, which is is no bad thing. But when you're at Liverpool and you're with Klopp and and so on, is it really advantageous to be over? Leeds with Bielsa I mean really can you, can you say it's a it's a step up I don't think it is and you know Liverpool are Liverpool kind of kind of on different planet um, not just to Leeds but to, to virtually everybody at the moment so they become difficult because of what the, the clubs who are loaning them out are looking for and, and they hold all the cards and, and it's it's all done on their terms as it was with Niketia you pay X amount you you know the, this is the, the deal this is the agreement this is what happens if he doesn't play and the clubs who want him pretty much have to say three bags full and do do what they're asked or or not take him. So that's what I that's the sort of player I I would expect them to go for. But the general feeling at Leeds and there is quite a lot of confidence about this is that Niketia stays and they pretty much stick as they are, barring any sudden injuries or any sort of crisis of confidence in January. You'd expect he'll get a chance during the second half of the season. Law of averages dictates. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it, it, it has to at some point. And the unfortunate thing for him is he was going to get a run of about three or four games um, from the QPR game onwards. Bielsa decided that he was going to play him and not just give him one game, he was going to give him a decent stretch to let him settle in and to see if he could not only score goals, but do what Bamford does by pressing and, and hassling centre-backs. And of course, injured his abdomen or whatever it was, he actually injured and you know hadn't been seen since until, until Saturday. Uh, and it is unfortunate. But having said that, it's been good for Bamford because he has played himself into a bit of form at the moment. And actually, I, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be advocating dropping Bamford at all just now. I think he, I think he's absolutely worth his place. He certainly played his way back into uh, into that spot, hasn't he? The number nine shirt. Yeah, yeah, and and he needed it. And I wonder whether Niketi being injured and not being in the wings and on his shoulder has helped to a degree because <laughs> all of a sudden the, the narrative about we could do with Niketi starting becomes irrelevant because he's not there. Yeah, it takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Just a, a left turn now onto Gary Monk. Not our problem anymore. However, he's got a problem with Pep Clotet. And what do you make of that? Because I want to kind of get an insight into what Gary Monk's like because what we tend to see from the outside is this very robotic personality, who, uh, whether it's him or his management company putting out all these tweets about, you know, it's it's MOT at Leeds, it's UTB at Borough, and then it's we're all Wednesday, aren't we, or whatever it is uh, down at Hillsborough. Yeah. So, so what's he like as a person? Well, it's a Spanish film who do that for him. I mean, do his PR and they call Six Pointer and they, they look after others. So bizarrely enough, they also look after Cotet, Cotet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, Ito Karanka, Ikanovic and and others I always got on fine with, with Monk when he was at Leeds he, he was prickly although not especially with me to, to begin with and obviously it was a good season and the the results were decent team developed and everything else there wasn't a huge amount to, to fight about but it all did get fairly bitter and twisted towards the end and he wasn't particularly happy with some of what I wrote after he left I don't think I was unfair to him at all but I didn't I didn't accept that it was Leeds' fault that he left and I didn't accept that it was his fault that he left either. I, I, I kind of felt that ultimately both sides almost got what they wanted. I think Monk got a good move to Middlesbrough which must have appealed. I think Leeds wanted to go in a different direction and as much as they could have, you know, would have kept him, I don't think they were disappointed that it kind of opened the door for a change attack and a different route. I mean, I, I don't know if I can read out what is what you've you've put on the, the plan but Gary Monk, is he really that much of a twat? Um <laughs> I mean, all, all you can say is that you've now got a situation where he's gone from Leeds under a cloud, he's gone from Borough under a cloud, he's gone from Birmingham under a cloud. And my understanding of what went on at Birmingham was that, first of all, they wanted to change his style. So their feeling was that the way he was playing and as much as it had kind of sorted them out and got them out of trouble, they didn't think that that was going to get them out of the championship. They would far rather play in a style that Bielsa plays in, which is, you know, Fairly ambitious given the setup at Birmingham and the problems they have, but that was that was what they wanted to do. And also they wanted to change the transfer um the transfer process and, and the way it was managed so that Monk's agent, James Featherston, had far less input than than he had been having. Now, Monk and Featherston kind of dispute the, the amount of input that, that they that he had and also dispute that, that there was any kind of wrong wrongdoing there or, or anything untoward. But Birmingham wanted themselves to have far more control over who was coming in. And little by little the the relationship fell apart. They they didn't speak for about a month. He was sacked. He left um at the, the end of end of last season. And Clotet, up until the last twenty four hours, now been appointed permanently, has kind of been interim caretaker manager all all the way through. And 
the guys I've spoken to at Birmingham maintain that he wasn't desperate for Monk's job. He wasn't sort of jumping into it and saying, marvellous, right, here we go. They, they said that if you watch back watch back through the first interview that he did afterwards, it's a bit like watching somebody who's been taken prisoner and has been forced to speak to the cameras. Just look on his face if I don't really know what's going on here and I, and, and I don't know what's happening. You know, Monk wanted some of his staff to go with him to Middlesbrough, but Birmingham wanted compensation. Um, you'll know that there's been the issue between Middlesbrough and Birmingham. Um, Middlesbrough have, have taken issue with what Gary Monk did up there during his time. There's been legal problems. And I know that Birmingham have paid some of the legal bills or did pay some of the legal bills for some of the staff. So when the staff were shaping to leave or suggesting they might go to to Sheffield Wednesday with Monk, Birmingham wanted compensation for them. So it hasn't happened. There've been other issues. And at the moment, James Beattie, seems to be effectively on gardening leave. He wanted to go to to Wednesday, from what I understand. He is working from home, if you can believe that. That is kind of what, what I was told, but essentially is no longer part of the picture there and has been kind of sidelined so that he's he's not close to it, presumably because they think it, it would be an issue if he is. So it's extremely messy. And I think what surprised everybody was just the way that Monk went in with two feet on Clotet after what was a fairly, fairly kind of benign straightforward introductory question from the guys at Radio Sheffield who literally said you know you've been coming up against Pep Clotet what, what do you think to which Monk basically said well we'd stab me in the back yeah. in not so many words you know and, sledgehammer to crack a nut yeah and it, it wasn't <laughs> even at the end of the game like they you know everybody said you know what what does it matter bygones are bygones we'll, we'll let it go you know it's it's still festering there so yeah a heck of a lot of bad blood and I'm sorry to say that it sounds like there's problems afoot for him at Sheffield Wednesday because they are they are obviously in fairly serious trouble with these EFL charges um, ah well we're not that we're not that sorry to say it in fairness it, well no I thought, I, I thought you might not be but if they're if they're found guilty and if they lose the case they'll be looking at hefty hefty points deduction 12 think, should um, we go for somebody suggested to me yesterday that they could be looking at 21 now, that would be a shame, wouldn't it? I think 12 it? would have been the punishment they'd have got if they were honest. So, so then for avoiding it's got, it. It's got to be worse. Yeah. I, th- I think I'm right in saying that you you get 12 for the worst breach of PNS rules. But someone said to me yesterday that you can now get an additional nine for what they consider to be aggravated breaches. So how that's going to shake down, I've, I've no idea. Wednesday, I'll, I'll deny any wrongdoing. Uh, they will contest it rigorously, as as you'd expect. But that will put the cat among the pigeons if that happens. Last question then, before we go on this one, uh, you mentioned earlier on sitting with Nicky Allen, who's yes. the blind Leeds fan who has the guide dog and goes, new guide dog. What was that experience like being at Bielsa's eye view down at the front there, you know, like really low down? I'm just curious how you what what how you perceive the game differently. Tactically, it's very, very difficult to see what's going on. I mean, in terms of formations and how everybody's set up and, and to watch closely the, the sort of general position of individual players is it's hard to keep tabs on. And yeah, I mean, when, when you're, you're a little bit lower than the pitch as well when you're, you're on the front row. So you don't get a particularly great view, but to some extent, you get a bit more of a feel for the intensity of it and the speed that it's flowing at and the mayhem. I think when you watch from a distance or you watch from an elevated point, it, football can all seem quite sort of calm and controlled and, and orchestrated. But when you actually get really close to the players, it's absolute mayhem. And you and you realise that the speed at which they're thinking and the speed at which they're making decisions. And you start to understand that when you're kind of ranting about somebody playing the wrong pass, that you, you have such a tiny amount of time to, to think about what you're going to do that it's understandable that, that everybody makes mistakes. Um, but she's been going, Nikki's been going to the football for years and years. And she had this guide dog, Rita, who was, who became famous on Twitter last year at the Sheffield Wednesday game for for barking along to Jack Harrison's goal. Um, But Rita reached the age of 10 and retired after the QPR game last month. So she had a new guide dog with her on Saturday, a new guide dog called Annie, who was learning the ropes. And tell you what, learning the ropes and the cheese wedges is quite some job. First game was that then? That was her first game on Saturday. And, And how was that? She coped incredibly well, but when Bamford scored after three minutes big celebration and people kind of spilled we were in the front row people kind of spilled over the front of us so the dog got kicked the dog panicked Nicky was able to calm her down feed her treats and, and everything else but he did, he did realise that it's an absolute jungle and it's a tough world for a tough world for an animal works with me as well that. feed me treats and I'll calm down <laughs> <laughs> oh bless well, uh, well we wish him the very best obviously with that one and is that in a forthcoming article you can be covering that was, that? that was out on Monday actually that was um, that was that was follow up to the, the Middlesbrough game and I, I mean Nikki Nikki's been blamed for about or registered blame for about 40 years she, she can see shadows and she has um, these special binoculars which mean that when she listens in to LUTV 
um, on a headset and follows with these binoculars. She can kind of see the movements and she can kind of get a feel for what's going on, but um, she has no clear vision uh, to speak of. And I mean, it's it's a sad story, really. She had perfect sight until she was 19 when she was playing hockey and was hitting the head with a hockey stick, which left her with monochrome vision on one side, but she was still able to drive and kind of live live a normal life. And then in her mid-20s, she was packing a car and the car door closed and hit her on the skull, fractured her skull in the same area. And um, it, it, she'd had that initial impact and, and her sight was lost completely. So from the age of, sort of 25, roughly onwards, um, she's yeah, she's been registered blind and, and has obviously been coping with that. But she's a, a huge Leeds fan and she was saying that um, the Reading game last week was the first that she'd missed in five years and only missed it because a new guide dog needed training for the Middlesbrough game. So a, a proper stalwart. And finally then, let's pick a one to watch for this weekend. We're playing Huddersfield. Who's the guy, the person, the battle that you are identifying, Phil, with your your Mystic Meg powers, your abilities to predict the future, which always been razor sharp? Yeah, I, I think we're due a Niketia goal this weekend. Got on last weekend for a few minutes. Didn't see too much of the ball, but you know, game game was was done by then. I think there could be goals in this. I think we're due an Eddie phone call. Um, I'd, I'll be getting some money on that. And a reminder before we head off then that this is one of 11 shows that The Athletic have launched on their podcast channels, which you can get on The Athletic app or via all your usual free podcast channels as well. You can get a discount if you fancy signing up for The Athletic at theathletic.com forward slash UK pod. And thanks for listening to this one. We'll speak to you next week. Mm-hmm.